I'll just say that one way of understanding it is of looking at how we can assess costs and benefits outside where there's a normal market. So it's within enterprises and in issues of public policy. And um, Larry is a distinguished practitioner of this approach. Um, he's been doing it for a very long time. Indeed, one of the few memories I have of, a, of the uh, graduate course I did in operational research at Brunel is a lecture he gave, and he barely changed in the 40 years since then, Larry, I have to say, into physically or mentally. Um, and uh, <laughs> just, I, I wish I could maintain your uh, mental agility as, as I could get, get older. The, and what he was talking about then was looking at, um, committed to looking at Bayesian statistics, a way in which you revise subjective probability using uh, actual data. I remember him being very strongly committed to that at the time. That's the memory I have. He's got a long record of using methods of decision analysis to weigh up multiple criteria and probabilities to enable people to make difficult decisions. And in particular, he's a world expert, if not the world expert, in decision conferencing, where you get people, stakeholders together to represent different views on the difficult decisions that have to be made. And you facilitate uh, the choices they make using formal methods of decision analysis. This requires extraordinary skill, ability to think on your feet, to understand difficult problems and play it back and get people to focus on the real issues. And Larry is a real expert at doing that. And for that and his other contributions, he was awarded last year the Ramsey Medal of the Decision Analysis Society of the Institute for Operations Research and the Management Science of the United States, which is uh, uh, created to recognize distinguished contributions to the field of decision analysis, named after a famous Cambridge mathematician, F.P. Ramsey, one of the pioneers of decision theory in the 20th century. And the, those who won the Ramsey Medal is this extraordinary list of the people who shaped the field of decision sciences. They include Howard Rafer, Ronald Howard, Peter Fishburne, Ward Edwards, Ralph Keeney, Robert Schlafer, Detlef von Winterfeld, and R. Duncan Luce. Another first is that uh, Larry is the first winner of the Ramsey Medal from Europe. And we, we've, we're delighted that he's a member of our department. The subject of the talk tonight, as you know, is looking at when values conflict. The problem being uh, that we've had a nuclear industry for a long time, and over the 40 years, the government has avoided the very difficult question as to what to do with the, ra with the radioactive waste that's generated, which is now enormous, and it can fill the Royal Albert Hall five times over, and the most dangerous stuff, an Olympic swimming, four Olympic swimming pools. So we certainly do have a very serious problem here with very strongly differing views as to what we ought to do about it. And um, what Larry's going to tell us tonight is the most extraordinary story, very gripping, and I'm delighted to say it has a happy ending, which, it, which you wouldn't think, given the sheer scale and difficulty of the problems being grappled with, is how the um, Committee for Radioactive Waste used this structured approach of decision analysis to come to a uh, consensus view. And Larry sees this as a way to show how public debate can be conducted usefully to inform policy decisions at the highest level of government. So it's great pleasure. Now I'll hand over to Larry to give the talk.
Thanks, Gwen. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, for those of you who um, are worried about the reference to uh, the mathematician Frank Ramsey, uh, that this is going to end up being a mathematical talk, uh, let me say that while it is true that I and many of my colleagues get involved in such arcane things as whether or not you can square the circle, uh, if you have the right frame on that problem, it's dead simple. <laughs> now that's a technological solution, and I want to point out today that we're going to talk about this evening a combination of a technological and a social solution, and it's my firm belief that both are required in order to solve this kind of very difficult, essentially social problem. So uh, I will spend uh, allow some time at the end for questions, so uh, uh, store them up. This is the topic of the talk, as Gwen said, and I'd like to uh, first start by giving a bit of background for those of you who are not too well acquainted with the problem that we have here in the UK. The problem is that radioactive wastes are currently stored right where they're produced, and those pictures around here are where they are stored. Uh, the red one is the most difficult waste, high-level waste. There's more of it up here. That's the waste that we have four Olympic swimming pools full of so far, and something needs doing about them. The storage is temporary. It's above ground, mainly, at the shallow depth or right on the ground. This is one of the major producers, that Sellafield, that was the uh, northwestern most um, source. And this is how that nasty high-level waste is intended to be stored. Uh, the radioactive solid materials are dissolved in nitric acid. It makes it highly radioactive. And it remains radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years. I've actually seen some of the simulations that NIREX have done, and there are some isotopes that remain, that peak in their radioactivity after 250,000 years. That's about two and a half ice ages away. So this is uh, not something you want to leave on the surface. It generates heat, uh, this high-level waste. Um, so you have to store it on the surface for 50 years to, just to let the heat dissipate enough that you can uh, vitrify it, convert it into glass, put it into stainless steel containers like the one you see on the right there. This is a store for high-level waste canisters. You can see it's extensive. The intermediate-level waste is uh, mainly materials that have been irradiated in a nuclear reactor, and they are crushed up, stored in tanks, vaults, drums, immobilized in cement-based materials in drums, and then stored. Here's a, here's a store for intermediate-level waste. There's a great deal more of this than there is of high-level waste. Altogether, the volume of high-level and intermediate-level waste would fill a Royal Albert Hall five times over. What's the problem? There is no government policy for dealing with it. It's here. It exists. In 1987, the government accepted that deep disposal underground was the proper solution. And I actually helped them at that time uh, to explore possible sites. And the eventual focus was on Sellafield. However, in 1992, NIREX's application to build a 
not, not a full repository, but a rock characterization facility, which is essentially a, a laboratory underground so that you can test how fast uh, water can penetrate rocks. Uh, their application was rejected by Cumbria County Council. It eventually went to a public inquiry. In fact, I was on the stand for a, a day and a half with my computer saying, yes, but if you believe this, this is what's best. If you believe that, that's what's best. And anyway, eventually this was rejected in 1997. By 1999, the government realized the former approach of decide, announce, and defend was inappropriate. You have to remember, this was the Thatcher era. NIREX didn't until June of last year release the complete list of the sites that we investigated way back in the late 80s. NIREX is now a great deal more open at that time. All this had to be kept secret. And the government recognized finally that a new approach was needed, one that would be scientifically and technically sound, that would involve citizens and stakeholders, and this was adopted. Well, adopted, but how do you make it work? Well, by the way, those of you who are taking notes will find that all of this is going to be on the website later, so you can reread all this if you, if you wish. Just go to the public lectures part of the LSE's website and you'll see these slides. It's uh, consistent with Quorum's policy anyway of keeping everything out in the open because if you go to the Quorum website, everything that they have done is in the open and is published there. In fact, there's so much of it, you have, may have a hard time finding exactly what you want. Anyway, enter the Committee on Radioactive Waste Management. They were formed by the UK government to make this happen in November 2003. Their brief was to recommend a long-term solution for managing the high-level and in intermediate level wastes. Low-level wastes are already dealt with mainly in shallow uh, trenches at DRIG. They were to review options in a way that was open, transparent, and inclusive, and the whole process had to inspire public confidence. We know that one of the things about anything nuclear is that the more often, the more frequently people hear about it, the more they learn about it, they often become more rather than less risk averse about it. So the whole question here was how could this be done in such a way that would inspire public confidence? Well, the first step that uh, was taken then was to suggest to the public at large that there was an opportunity here. Applications were received by DEFRA and eventually 13 members were chosen from those applications. And at the start, they were a hugely diverse group of people, as you'll think, see in a minute. They also hired Professor Ottman Wren, who's a German uh, social scientist, who persuaded Quorum to take what he calls an analytic deliberative approach, to analyze it and to deliberate in public forum, to involve the public, to engage stakeholders and specialists, and to build trust. However, after spending at least a year, a little more than a year, most of 2004, on this analytic deliberative process, it was clear that things were not going well. <clears throat> One member was sacked from the committee. Another member, David Ball, resigned in protest. 
Um, the House of Lords Science and Technology Committee was scathing about quorum. Their fifth report is on the website. You can pick it up and you can see what they said about quorum. <clears throat> Michael Meacher called for quorum to leave. David Ball published in a chemical engineering newsletter in September 2005 an article from which I've extracted these sentences. He believed there was an atmosphere of anti-science. He felt that there should be attempts to restore the balance between analytic and deliberative elements, and that these were being vigorously resisted by quorum. And he attributed much of this to the lingering effects of postmodernism, and in particular to social, postmodern social scientists. Well, by the 2nd of February, 2005, I met with Quorum, a subset of the, of the group, and I suggested that they needed a structured process. In fact, it was an hour and a half meeting, and I took the debatable decision to tell them that if they carried on as they were, they were doomed to fail. Um, and I hoped that they would seriously consider what they were doing. Indeed, on the 21st of March, an invitation to tender came out in which they wanted multi-criteria analysis to be a key input to its process. They wanted to teach in to the quorum committee itself on what multi-criteria decision analysis was. And they required a three-stage process to define the criteria, to test a scoring scheme, and to score the options. This was a tender that we won in public debate, and fortunately, um, I and my colleagues did this through Catalyze, which is a company that was on my original slide. Catalyze is actually um, an LSE spin-off company, and they are mainly engaged in doing uh, decision analysis in the public sector, private sector, and in the voluntary sector. So what is this thing that I was supposed to teach them? Multi-criteria decision analysis. Well, for, oh, that's too bad. That's a which magazine right there, but it seems to be fairly blanked out since I first put it on. Multi-criteria decision analysis is, is an approach to appraising alternatives that differ on several criteria, as you would expect to see in, um, in a which magazine. The whole process accommodates hard data, it accommodates facts, it, inc it includes informed judgment and uncertainty. It's basically a theoretically way, a theoretically sound way to balance apples and oranges, actually to compare them. And you do this not by comparing apples and oranges, but by comparing the value of apples with the value of oranges. So it's really value and use. You know, if I'm constructing a Waldorf salad, oranges are not useful, but apples are. For everyday eating, I might want both. So we needed to have a, a context to, the, to these values, and MCDA helps to do that. The other element was decision conferencing. Gwyn talked about that briefly, and I, I would just like to tell you about decision conferencing, because we were suggesting that all of our interventions that we engaged in with quorum should be done in decision conferencing mode. Decision conferencing is, is one or more workshops. It's attended by key players who represent the key perspectives on the problem. 
It's facilitated by an impartial specialist and group processes and decision analysts. I and my colleagues did that. And we used what I call a requisite model. That's a good enough model, not an optimal model, just a good enough model created on the spot to help provide structure to thinking. It is not a model, nor is this process, a process to give the right answer. It's to help people think more clearly. It's a process that enables people to, to extend their intellects. I believe, actually, that groups can be better, you know, many heads can be better than one, uh, in contrast to um, too many cooks boil the broth. We, we have very conveniently in English all these contrary um, aphorisms. It's possible to make many heads be better than one, but it can only be done with proper structures. Now, I want to talk about the three strands in which all of this happened. The left-hand strand was under Coram's control. It was control of the process and of the model. They early on generated a number of scenarios of possible futures. They looked at all kinds of options. They eliminated the silly ones like sending it up to the sun, which actually is a very good idea if you could just send all your nuclear waste up to the sun. At the, the sun won't even notice. Uh, the only trouble is that rockets tend sometimes to do this, so we couldn't do that. Uh, putting it in the ocean was another really good idea because it would so dilute them that you wouldn't notice either, but that would be politically unacceptable and so forth. And eventually they had a, 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 a shorter list of options and they uh, finally finalized the methodology. On the right-hand side, uh, other people, particularly Lancaster University, who did a superb job of this, engaged stakeholders and the public. So they were consulting on the basis of what, what are the key issues? What do you as the public feel are the important issues in managing radioactive waste? And what are the criteria that you think we should think about? Eventually, they also engaged stakeholders in assessing the relative importance of those criteria. Then in the middle, and this is more where we're involved, we helped to define the criteria, to test a scoring scheme for scoring options against the criteria, and for conducting a final NCDA decision conference at the end of March this year. Open to the public. First time I, well, it was the second time I've had people open in an open meeting, attending and, and observing. That's a simplified version of what actually happened. Uh, NNC was a company that uh, organized much of this and kept us uh, moving down parallel tracks rather efficiently. But it does give you at least the key elements here because there is therefore a very important social element in here. There's a very important technical element here and somebody has to keep track of the, what's going on and make sure, making, making sure constantly that it's meeting the needs of corn. Well, let me tell you about the options. This all looks very complicated, but actually it's not all that complicated. Let me just stand back here so I can uh, see it myself. On the left-hand side, you'll see a, a number of storage options. This is to store it on the surface or the near surface. These are disposal options. That's to get rid of it underground. Those storage options aren't quite as complicated as they look because they're various combinations of just a few variables. You'll see that you can store things above ground, above ground, above ground, above ground, or underground. You can store them locally where the waste is produced or centrally. 
you can do it with current levels of protection right now, which would withstand you know, a plane crashing into it and so forth, but probably wouldn't withstand a serious rocket attack by terrorists. Um, or you could enhance the protection. Over here, we have the, the main, these first three are the main geological disposal options. Geological disposal is all about burying it, big shaft several hundred um, meters into the ground, then tunnels that you store the stuff into. Um, another way to do it is to do it phased. This one presumes that as you store it, you backfill it so that you close it off as you're finishing it. This says, no, keep it all open so that if you want to do something in the future, maybe in 200 years' time, you can take it all out again. But at least it's underground and in deep caverns. These boreholes were a more recent possibility. You dig a hole two or three kilometers in the ground. It's now possible to do that. And you take those drums and drop them, hoping that they don't twist and get stuck. Um, these are a number of other ones, near surface, local, central, mounted over. You might do that to a nuclear reactor, for example. When it's finally decommissioned, you just pour dirt over it and make a mountain there, and that's, that's it. Now you have a special a site of special scientific interest over a period of time as it begins to get uh, attract the flora, flora and fauna. Or you can create a shallow vault, either centralized or locally. So those are the... Um, the, the, the possibilities. It's important how to recognize that only those nine options are the ones that apply to high-level waste, and those are the ones I'm going to talk about now. Okay. Oh, yes, there's this other problem. We have different kinds of waste, like seven different kinds. I've talked to you already about the two that are the most important high-level waste and the intermediate level, and that one, and um, here we have the intermediate level wastes. Re reactor decommissioning wastes are pretty, that's kind of bad stuff too. Uh, and some of it is intermediate level and some is low level. So there you go, seven different kinds of waste streams. Um, oh, yes, there's further complication here. The high level, I want you to just keep your eye on, on that high level waste because that's the one that I'm going to talk about. But the further complication is that there are a lot of criteria as well. And these are only the headline criteria. There are many more underneath them, and I'm going to show you those in a minute. So we've got these 11 headline criteria, all the different wastes, 14 different options. It's getting complicated. This is not something that people can do in their heads just by deliberating it in an open forum. I'm going to tell you a little more about these, but um, again, it will turn out that the ones now that are turning bold are the important ones. Those are the ones that after the fact we discovered are really very important. In other words, what's the safety in the short term? That's less than 300 years. Why 300 years? That is the maximum period of time Quorum felt that they could guarantee or provide a reasonable guarantee that institutional control could be maintained. Think back how long in any country that you know of historically have you been able to maintain institutional control? 300 years, they felt. So we're very worried about what's going to happen during that period of time. Other things might happen beyond that. 
Security really has to do with things that I'll show you in a minute. The burden on future generations is extremely important because there's an EU directive that basically says all wastes will be, will be managed in the country where they are produced, and they are not to impose, they are to, you are to minimize the burden that you leave for future generations. Okay, finally, flexibility. Many people have argued that it's useful to keep very flexible here. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, while I was even preparing these slides, I, I was doing some uh, searches on the web and discovered that there is, um, a few years ago, uh, they discovered they can speed up the radioactivity, the, the decay process using lasers. Okay, it was only done on one isotope, but still, it's possible. So would it be possible sometime in the future to speed up all the radioactive decay, to shorten the half-lives, half make this stuff? Well, if so, then you ought to maintain it in a flexible way, like in phased geological disposal, or perhaps even on the surface, so that you could respond more flexibly as we learn more about the problem. Now, you can see from all of these that there is you know, a case to be made for storing the stuff because it's flexible okay, and it's reasonably safe. It doesn't cost so much. But on the other hand, there's also a case to be made for burying the stuff. And when I first started doing work with Corum, I couldn't see a clear solution. In fact, I didn't see a clear solution until the end of March this year. Let me tell you about these headline criteria. Safety less than 300 years means the effects of radiation, but they're also non-radiation non effects. You have to build these, these. Whatever you do, you've got to build something, and there will be worker deaths when that happens. Uh, now, safety greater than 300 years was actually left out of the analysis. We, we started with less than 300 years, so that's why it's gray there. Uh, it, it didn't, you didn't need a, a model to show what would happen beyond 300 years. Worker safety itself, radiation and non-radiation, this is non-radiation effects on people. You have accidents and civilians can get killed. This is workers getting killed. Here we have security. The waste could be misappropriated. There could be an attack pre-emplacement, that means, before the stuff is all put into place. Or there could be an attack after it's been put into place. Here are the headline criteria for environment. Radiological pollution less than 300 years. What's its effect on the environment? What's the effect? What is the chemical pollution that it could create? That, by the way, was a criterion that only got added very, very late in the whole process. It was not something that uh, the public thought about. Physical disturbance. Obviously, there's a physical disturbance in creating these sites. And how well are you using resources? Some take up more land. Some of them take, take less. Socioeconomic, there's an employment issue and there's a socioeconomic spin-offs. As for amenity, that's about to do with the visual, the noise, the transport. Oh, there's where land take is. I'm sorry, it wasn't in the previous one. Burden on future generations turns out to be important. There's a cost and effort of leaving it to other people to deal with. There's a worker dose problem. How much doses are, are the workers going to get? And there's an environmental impact in the future that you leave. Finally, how implementable are these solutions? Some of them differ in that they're technically more feasible, like boreholes are less feasible because it's a new technology, whereas building caverns is, is perfectly feasible. We did it to get from the UK to France with a channel tunnel. There are also 
sorry, there are also legal and regulatory issues to be dealt with. Here we have a flexibility criterion that stands by itself, and the 26 is cost. So you got 26 criteria. This is a complicated problem. This is not a problem to be dealing with in a simple way. Well, one of the things that we engaged in in these decision conferences was defining the subcriteria. We had some rough definitions that we started with. Those were the definitions that came from the public, that came from stakeholders, but then we needed to talk to the specialists, the people who really know about these things. And we spent a lot of time refining these. We usually had, for every criterion, we had at least a half day talking about this. In some cases, a few of them took a whole day just to get the agreement about, first of all, the definition. What is it about radiation? Now, lots of people thought it's the amount of radiation, but it turned out in this definition, now we thought that was not actually, it's, it's the extent to which an option is expected to protect an individual member of the public from exposure to radiation during its first 300 years. Now, for every criterion, we created a nine-point scale where one is just barely acceptable. If any of the options had fallen below a one, because we had a zero as a possibility, it would have zapped that option entirely. No other criterion could make up for that. So you'll see that one here meant very poor resilience. Number nine was it's just inherently resilient. We then had to define what we meant by adverse events. We have a list of adverse events as well. What are the things that could happen in the future? So it, and it took a long time to get this right. I, I don't even have enough space on my slide, you see, to put the other positions. I simply said, okay, guys, define number one, define number nine, now define position five, so that the difference between one and five's impact is about the same as the difference between five and nine. How much do you care about that impact difference, one to five, compared to five to nine? Define five so that it's in the middle of a preference scale. So that's what I mean by a preference value scale, that you're defining it in such a way that these values are equal. Then I would say, now take the one to five, and define three, so one to three is about the same difference in impact as three to five. And define seven, so that five to seven is about the same. And in some cases, I used another methodology, which is a qualitative assessment, to find out whether those actually were equal intervals. So we worked very hard at trying to define a scale, a value scale, a preference value scale, where each step was an equal interval of value. Well, there it is for radiation. Now let me show you one for flexibility. Okay? Flexibility is defined as the extent to which the option is expected to allow for future choice and respond to unforeseen or changed circumstances over the 300-year time span. Here I could get five on my slide. So you can see there's the difference between one and five. Now, should, you should care as much about that difference as you care about this difference. Getting used to thinking about increments of difference was a very important aspect of our work with 
the committee. You need that if you're going to multiply these scores on the left eventually by weights. Multi-criteria decision analysis is very clear about this. Anyway, every one of those 24 scales is on the web. You can look at them, see if you think they're equal interval scales. Right, once we got the, the scales and we scored the option, we had to then score the options on, this, on those scales. As I said, the specialists defined the criteria in the summer of 2005. And then the same specialists came back and they scored the options late in 2005. Between that period of time, there was some working on the original scales. We, we needed some further refinement. There was some peer review that occurred. Uh, so again, we didn't just take the output from the summer and use it in December. There was some massaging of the outputs. But when the groups reconvened, they had to approve the massaging. Most of them had already contributed to it by email. Actually, I, I should have counted the number of emails on this project that I had to uh, deal with. It runs into scores. So the specialists were doing the scoring. I used a nominal group technique while we were doing the scoring. A nominal group technique is, is there because we know in cognitive psychology that if you ask people to say, well, here are your options. How do you think option number one scores on that one to nine scale, say, of flexibility? The first person to answer tends to anchor the group. People think, oh, he said a seven. Actually, I was thinking only a three. Well, maybe a four would be right. right? And so you modify what you thought you were thinking in light of the first person speaking. So I forbade that to happen. And I said, you must all make a mental note, or even better, write it on a piece of paper. Again, the research says mental notes are almost as good as a piece of paper. Write it down. Then everybody must reveal their original score to everybody else, which they did. We then took the most extreme scores and got those people to talk to each other. Why did you score it only a two? Why did you give it an eight? They talked to each other. Then I open up the discussion to the whole group, and they try to agree a consensus score or if they couldn't, and that was the case in, in, in several, give, me a, give us a range. You couldn't agree? Oh, okay, it's, it's four to seven. Then. And that's what we recorded, four to seven. So there is uncertainty in these scores. And that's what we're taking account of here. So that's scoring the options. Now let me show you some scores, just to give you a sample. What I've done is to pick, once again, that one that you saw before. That was the very first radiation criterion, the safety criterion. That's number one of, of the safety. And here's the flexibility criterion. And let me call your attention to, by the way, the software didn't figure out that it would have been better to go one, three, five, seven, nine. So it, found <laughs> it finds six pieces, places on there instead of five. Um, but at any rate, you can see where, where these score. You've got fives and sixes, and fours, fives, and sixes for the storage options, but nines and eights, okay? So for, obviously, for the safety point of view, disposal's better. But for flexibility, the picture's a little more complicated. You see? 
For flexibility, well, all the storage options got pretty high scores, eights. But notice that phase geological disposal, they gave an eight and a half. That's even more flexible. Whereas boreholes and geological disposal scored low. So that gives you a sense of the difference. Sometimes we don't have anything at a nine. Sometimes we don't have anything at a one. That's okay. The one and the nine were originally defined. I said define one and nine so that one is the minimum acceptable and define the nine so that as far as you can now tell, all the options will fall between including one and nine. So there's an example of scoring. Well, we did that. Again, that took several weeks to get that all done. Then the next task was to weight the, score, weight the criteria. But we left that task until the very last decision conference, which was held on the 28th to 30th of March of this year. How did we do the weighting? Well, first, we had designed a public consultation exercise where I actually trained people, including people from Lancaster University who were used to doing these um, public and stakeholder engagements. We trained them in how to assess weights. Weights are difficult. And I'll tell you why they're difficult. People tend to think that the weight of a criterion is just, you know, some things are more important than others, and you can assess a weight right now. So, for example, if all of you were thinking about buying a car, wouldn't you agree that the cost of the car is important to you? It would give it a lot of weight in your decision? Yeah, of course. But most of us don't look at the entire range of cars that are available on the market from the very cheapest to the most expensive. We usually construct a short list of cars. And now let's suppose I've got your short list here arranged in order of decreasing cost. Okay? Your five cars. Now let's suppose there's a difference between the most and the least expensive car of just 200 pounds. Now, is cost going to have a big impact on your decision? Probably not. Yeah. Suppose the difference is 2,000 pounds. But doesn't that now make it more important? Unless you're a millionaire. In which case, you might think, oh, 2,000 pounds doesn't matter to me. Now, this is an extremely important point. It's hidden in cost-benefit analysis. The point is that the weight that you attach to a criterion depends upon the range that's represented either by a fixed scale like the 1 to 9 position or by, in a relative scale by the most to the least of the options. Here it's a fixed scale. So we had to ask the question, how much do you care about the difference between 1 and 9 on this scale? compared to the difference between 1 and 9 on that scale? And that's a tough question to get your head around. We constructed some little devices and displays and a, ver a variety of things so that the public could understand that. And I was delighted when the, the report came back that said, yeah, people get it. And it's not too surprising because actually when you go to a a department store, say, to buy a major appliance. And, and the salesman says, how much do you want to spend? And you say, don't ask me that. How much I want to spend depends on what I get for it. Okay? 
So you say, well, show me a basic model, but then show me some things that I could get with a little bit more money. And you're then essentially having to trade off an increment of money for an increment of performance. So you're already used to thinking about these differences. Economists like to think about these as marginal differences, and we play around with them. We do here, too. Well, on the 28th of March, we spent a lot of time assessing weights. But we also spent time examining results, because once you've got weights, you multiply the weights by the scores, and that gives you an overall result across all of the criteria. I didn't bother to put the mathematics up here, because it's just simple weighted averaging. So for a particular option, to look at where it's scored on all those 26 criteria, we take a weighted average. Actually, not 26. 25, because we didn't think of, we didn't include costs. Costs is a separate analysis, so we just looked at the impacts on the 25 sub-criteria. So what did we get? This, by the way, simply illustrates the swing weighting process. You're essentially comparing that difference on the left with that difference on the right. That was the kind of display that we gave to the public. We just showed them the one in nine definition for each of the criteria. And we did it in little clusters so that you didn't have to look at all 25 at once. We separated them. At any rate, eventually, that's the operational question. Okay, now when you put it all together, here was the result we got. And I have to tell you that when this came up, I was astonished. I couldn't quite believe it. What you see here are stacked bar graphs. And the higher the graph, the better overall the option is, the more preferred it is. And what you can see right away is that these three disposal options, scoring 74, 66, and 77, scored better than any of the storage options. It was an absolutely clear result. Furthermore, the stack bar graph shows you why it got a good score or not. So, for example, the green coloring up here, safety less than 300 years. Well, the bigger the green, the more safe it is. Well, obviously, it scores very well on those better than it does on simply storage. Look at red. That's flexibility. Right? These are all flexible. Geological disposal is not very flexible because, remember, you're backsealing it as you push the stuff in. Boreholes are not flexible at all, so you don't get any red at all. Once you've dropped them, that's it. Whereas phase geological disposal is just slightly more flexible than those. And so forth. The, the blue one is interesting because it's absent from all of those. You see what the blue is? Burden on future generations. It's absent on the storage ones, because that imposes a burden, so you don't get any credit for that. And it's those, this one, this one, that's a security bar right there. The blue one, burden, and this one, flexibility. Those are the four headline criteria that are basically controlling the whole result. The others have some small impact, but honestly, it, it, it doesn't amount to very much. So there's the result. 
Well, this is surprised Corin too. I, I had actually entered all the data myself into the computer program. It's a computer program actually we developed uh, here at the LSE called HIDU, which deals with multi-criteria decision analysis. And I had entered all the scores in, and after I entered it all in, I thought, well, I've seen all the, all the data. What's the result going to be? And I didn't know. I couldn't tell, because I could see advantages and disadvantages. These weights over here give you an indication of the relative weights that's, that are put on. The fact they add up to 751, I could divide them all by 751, and then you get a relative percentage contribution. But you can see that um, we have most of the weight on security and on safety. And next, we have burden on future generations and flexibility. So that's one of the reasons why they're controlled so much, because there's a big difference between the bottom and the top of the scales associated with those headline criteria. Okay, at this point, I thought, ah, I have an idea. I, I thought, let, remember there's uncertainty in some of those scores, the ranges. So I went back and I said, let's put all of the optimistic scores onto these storage options and put pessimistic scores on those to see if it reverses the picture. And here's the result. I'll flip back again. You can see it reduces the difference between them slightly. And this is another astounding conclusion. Uncertainty makes no difference in this. The uncertainty that the that the experts were experiencing in scoring the options. Makes no difference. So we can dismiss the uncertainty associated with the scores as not relevant to the final recommendations. That, by the way, rarely happens, but it did in this case. Okay. We then did sensitivity analysis. We said, maybe we got the weights wrong. Suppose you wiggle the weights around, and here's one where weights do matter. The overall weight out of 100 points on burden, as you can see, is about, um, it's a little more than 15%. And at that 15%, the most preferred option is number nine, phrase geological disposal. Actually, seven, eight, and nine are all getting better as you increase the weight on burden, well, as you would expect. So what happens if you decrease it? Suppose you don't care about that. Suppose you say, well, let's give it to our grandchildren. What happens is you decrease the weight, and still the best thing is phase geological. You can put it down to zero. And the result of all the other criteria still favors phase geological. The second most favored one is, uh, which one, is seven or eight? It would be probably the borehole. Let's see, is that true? No, that's the borehole right there. The borehole loses a lot if you move it to the left. And there is one option here that gets into third place, one storage option. But still, you see, basically you can conclude the weight and burden doesn't actually change my picture. We did an instant sensitivity analysis on everything. That's what this display is. This horrible display tells you that, well, 
the most preferred option overall, the one with the biggest score, was phase geological. What would happen if you increased the weight on any of these 25 criteria? Now, the little green bars say you've got to increase the weight by more than 15 points before it would change. Changing the weight between 5 and 15 points is what the yellow one means. And, but there's one red one. That one says if you decrease the weight on flexibility, you will shift your decision from phase geological to geological. And you don't have to change it very much, just a little tiny bit, and you can make a case then for geological disposal. The fact that there are, there's only one red, and it only changes to another disposal option, says, honestly, this is a very robust model. You can muck around with the weight. So we concluded here. Oh, yeah, forgot. Other perspectives. The group had prepared themselves ahead of time by taking all of the work that Lancaster University did and others, going out to schools, looking at young citizens, interviewing older people, interviewing non-government organizations. Every one of these is a different sector. That's a single man who had sent in his views. Learned societies, uh, Royal Society, for example, Environment Agency, and so forth. We asked them, what do you think the weights should be? And maybe you don't agree with some of the scores. So every one of these rows here was determined by rerunning the model with different scores and different weights that we had discovered were at least um, representative of, of that community. Now, there's a lot of disagreement within each of these communities. So we simply said, you know, can we find a kind of middle road within that disagreement? If you were to go back and look at what some of these people said specifically, you could put in a different set of weights and so forth and perhaps get a different answer. But the point is this. When you do this, the first choice is represented in blue. And in every single case, it says bury the stuff, dispose of it. In only one case, NGOs, and by the way, that includes Greenpeace, right? The Greenpeace people were very skeptical consistently. We have one Greenpeace ex-chairman on the committee. He's totally skeptical about disposing of nuclear waste because he says in the long run it's, it's certain to get in the groundwater. Right? Geologists disagree with him, but that's his perspective. And you can see that, okay, fair enough. You, these two don't come out well, but still your first choice then would be geological disposal, even for you. Your second choice would be a storage option. So again, we come up with a very clear picture. You can't get such a clear picture by just discussing it in an open, deliberative forum. You need numbers. You need a model. You need something where you can change things around and see what happens. So this was a surprisingly robust result. And when you log on, if you wish, to the Quorum website, you can download the MCDA model. You can you get a 20-day free license to Highview. You can try it out. 
You can put your own numbers in. Do whatever you want. See what you get. Why did it work? Why did we get such a robust result? When you get two different groups of people with different perspectives on the issues together, one of the first things that happens, developers on the one hand, for example, and conservationists on the other, they immediately, in, in an almost magical way, discover the criteria on which they disagree. And they spend most of their time arguing out that what this process does is admit, yes, there are disagreements, but don't forget there are a lot of criteria on which you would agree. And what has happened here is that agreement has overbalanced disagreement. This allows individuals like the Greenpeace representative to say, I don't like the result, but I can see why I got it. We do agree on a lot of things. So that meant it was possible for the group internally to still maintain their disagreements, but to agree on the way forward. So we're not asking about consensus about everything. We're trying to provide a structure here within which an organization can think more constructively or a group can think more constructively. Quorum finally recommended First, they did a provisional recommendation, and then they and then sent those out for public consultation. That was in May, and then in July, this is some of the recommendations, not all the recommendations that they put forward. Some form of geological disposal they are recommending. That further research is needed on geological disposal. Maybe boreholes are better than we think, or maybe worse. Safe and secure management of wastes through improved Interim storage until a disposal system is developed must take place. I have to say that some of this sort of stuff that's so nasty is not actually contained all that well, and it needs fixing. The storage needs to be strengthened and so forth. So there will have to be a period of up to 50 years uh, of storage. Uh, people are now arguing that it would be probably 20 years before if we do geological disposal before it's even ready to put stuff in. It's going to take about 10 years just to find a site that people can agree about, and then another 10 years to build it. And they recommend community involvement in siting, which did not happen with the IREX case that I involved, was involved in in the late 80s. And further, that sorry, open and transparent process must be maintained. So they, they want to carry on with the, what they've done. The main disadvantage of this big process is it was expensive. And I have to say, well, this is my personal opinion, it would have been better to have involved the technical side that we dealt with, the MCDA, but within the social process from the start. I'm sure we could have much compressed the initial public consultation part because we would have put structure on that as well that would have speeded up the process and cut down the cost. What have I learned? I learned a lot from this. This was a, quite a challenge, partly because when I first encountered Quorum, I thought, oh boy, there is a huge disagreement in this group. I figure there's a 50-50 chance that I can even help them. Uh, but let's try. What I, what I realized was that, yes, indeed, given that people are willing to try, and they, they, I, 
really give Corn people a lot of credit, they, they did try, that you can achieve rational debate within a deliberative discourse process, but you've got to have it structured. There needs to be some technical structure to all this. That's what the MCBA did. It said, no, stop talking about this. We're only talking about this piece. How many times did I say that? That's a, that's a, that's a different criterion. You should be in that group, not in this group, right? So forth. But the technical process is not sufficient. You need to have a social process. And that's why we needed groups of people. I, I certainly would not ever recommend that you just talk to single experts. Experts have huge disagreements. It was not unusual for a score to be given that ranged from three to eight. And people are astounded because they think in talking words that they agree with one another. But as soon as they give a number, suddenly they realize they're in substantial disagreement. And the last thing is that values are constructed. These numbers don't just exist ready to be plucked out of the heads of, of our specialists. They had never thought about the world quite this way. And so the, the numbers get constructed. You know, it's a little bit like, how did you get your glasses prescription? You know, your Oculus said, which do you prefer, this or this? And ask some very simple questions, which is what we were doing. And out of a series of simple questions, numerical prescription is obtained. By the way, some of you probably know what your prescription is. So you now know what the number is. It's associated with better or worse sight. And in a way, that's what happens here. People learn to associate numbers with feelings. I said to them throughout the whole process, whenever you see something that doesn't feel right in your gut, tell me. And don't wait. Tell me now so that we can explore that discrepancy. And very often in a group, exploring that discrepancy meant that one person swayed the whole group. This happened to my, in my groups more than once. So values are constructed. This is one of the reasons why I don't like some of the methods that are used in um, cost-benefit analysis, which seem to suggest that you're plucking numbers out of people's heads. Uh, contingent valuation isn't, isn't quite right. That's not what we were doing here. We were getting groups of people together, and we were helping them to construct reasonable numbers and, and reasons for it. All the reasons are, are documented as well. So you will see reports if you take the trouble to look at them that explain what the scores were for every single criterion. There's a separate report for every criterion that explains the numbers and explains the reasons for them. And they were peer-reviewed as well. Well, that's it. I just want to say one last thing, that this was a, an effort of a lot of people. And it's very important to recognize that I, in particular, thank Gordon McCarran, who was the chairman of the quorum committee, and the entire quorum membership, well, except the two who left. But, the remaining membership really did a fantastic job in working so hard in spite of huge differences. NNC organized everybody and kept things moving smoothly. There were a number of subcontractors and specialists who were brought in, not just uh, catalyzed. And of course, I have my, my colleagues to thank, uh, one of whom, Mara Haroldi, is here. Bob Kitchen and Mike Egan. Mike was from Contessa. He was our 
substantial expert. He actually knows about things nuclear, whereas I'm an electrical engineer originally and eventually a psychologist and now a decision scientist, and I'm not a specialist in these things. But I am a specialist in the process, and it's the process here carried out as a process consultant, which means that principle number one in process consultancy, always try to be helpful. I tried to, even though sometimes it was extremely difficult, especially on July 7th last year. We were working, and suddenly we heard these explosions, which were only a few blocks away, and that substantially, of course, disrupted the work, and we were all very worried. But we did eventually, because we had no place to go. We carried on anyway. <coughs> so that was a, a, real, a real challenge throughout the whole, whole process. Um, anyway, that's the story. It started out with my great anxiety that it would never, you know, 50-50 chance it was going to happen, but eventually it did come out very well. And um, we're now waiting to hear what the government will actually do, because Quorum said, you are not to cherry pick what you like. You must accept the whole package. We'll see what happens. Thank you very much, Larry, for a, for a great exposition of an enthralling story, which, as I said, does have a happy ending. <laughs> you knew when you, well, you knew at the start of the lecture you did, but not at the start of the analysis. I wanted to say that uh, this, not only will the slides be on the web, but the, this event will be recorded and made available online as a podcast on the LSE website, uh, and the system should be launched later this term. Um, there's now time for questions, so would anyone like to start with anyone to make this question? And we've got microphones coming around. Hi. I was interested in your stakeholder consultation. How do you ensure you take into account the views of future Sorry, how do you choose? How do you take into account the views of future generations? I mean, it seems to have worked since it comes out as one of your big criteria. Sorry, could, could you say who you are and where you're from? Uh, my name is Andrew Leventis. I work in the Office of Science and Innovation. Right. And, and the question is, how do you take account the weight of future generations? When they don't, yeah. Sorry? It's an easy question to start with, anyway. Well, we don't have anybody to ask, do we, yet? But I don't know if you noticed uh, in one of my slides, the one with the older people and younger people. There's a very interesting uh, feature to that. I'll sit back to it. If you look at the younger citizens, they give much more weight to geological disposal and boreholes than they do to phase. That's very interesting. Now look at older people. They give more to geological disposal. Sorry, most to phase geologicals. The older people <laughs> seem to be more willing to pass it on to future generations than younger people. So that's the closest I could come to answering your question. So we do have different weights for those two sets of people. Yes, there's a question over there. Peter? Larry, that's a very interesting uh, snapshot of the, of the process, very nice story. Um, I, I think that with this, uh, the level lies very much in the detail 
And um, it seems to me two, two de details matter. One general detail is exactly how you define the criteria. Um, and the second one, perhaps, is how you define the decision frame, uh, uh, the time frame and so on. But I mean, to take the first, uh, to begin with, um, in the criteria, you had flexibility as one criteria. Now, it seems to me that flexibility could, in fact, be defined multiply. Um, so clearly, one, what, one aspect of it, which you, which you looked at in, in detail, was whether you could retrieve the waste. And, uh, and, and so, for example, the surface, surface storage, clearly that was flexible, but also one form of geological disposal was highly retrievable. But it seems to me that a different flexibility criterion is, is, is that of, of effectively reversibility. So um, um, suppose if you decide to store on the surface, you could then easily change that to, to, to the geological disposal at relatively small cost, whereas the, going the other way around, um, going from, if you decide geological disposal badly, you'd be better off to keep it on the surface, let's say. Sure. Happen, but if it did, that, that, that would, so there's an economic aspect of flexibility as well, which I think this didn't fully cover. Um, that's just one example. Um, I mean, clearly it's difficult to get these, these right. I, I, I appreciate that. And, and perhaps that, that, that is, um, it's too difficult to have too many criteria. On the business of the time frame, um, it seems to me that although we spoke about a decision for 300 years, in principle, in any decision that is made could simply be a decision to postpone for 20 years, making a future decision. And if technology improves over the next 20 years, let's say, in how to dispose uh, uh, deeply and so on, then that could there could be an argument that would also be a, a well, way Well, that's right. And can, the can first just, can, just to clarify the, the, the nature of the question, one is the interpretation of, of flexibility. Um, and is storage different from the uh, putting it deep within the ground, uh, disposal? And the other is looking at the time frame. And right. aren't you allowing for increase in technology so we could do things, we could defer for 20 years, you have more options? Larry? Yeah. Well, the time one is easy because uh, you've got about 50 years before you're going to start using a repository anyway. You've probably got 20 years before one would even be ready. So if anything happens over that period of time that might make the solution that they're pursuing invalid, then I suppose it'll be given up. So that's the most flexibility that we, of time that we can accommodate. As for the criterion, one of the things I, I needed to point out is that some of these criteria have more than one element to them. Um, you'll, you'll notice that this is the one for radiation. Option fails to maintain protection by a substantial margin beyond the defined reference level under any one of a range of reasonably foreseeable hazard events requiring significant and time there's, it's actually quite complex. There are some criteria that actually have two different elements to them that we tried to balance. And when we score them, we say, well, these are only representative things that could happen. There are other, other combinations that could, have, of course, happen. And, so, and, and the experts didn't seem to have much trouble in dealing with that. The flexibility one was clearly uh, just this. We had long discussions on many of the criteria about whether or not there were cost implications. And if there were cost implications, then we put them in the cost criterion rather than in the. But there are some other things that are really tricky because if you, if you change the weight on burden on future generations, if you increase it, you're going also to, you really should increase the cost as well because it's going to 
this gets into a tricky business about how to accommodate costs, but if somebody wants to know about that, they can ask a question. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank you. That was Peter Sozu from LSE, by the way. Next, next to Peter, yeah. Could you say who you are, please, and where you're from? My name's Alistair Fisher. I'm a health economist at the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence. And I have um, four questions, several of which can be answered with about two words. First of all, you ask whether it's expensive and what you mean by that, how much does it cost? The second one has to do with something that you've already been talking about, but it's the other way around, not just whether, in fact, one particular criterion can be really is two, but whether um, the alternatives that you have are, in fact, independent, and if they're not, then uh, maybe you're double counting. The third one is whether, in fact, you're actually getting some anchoring on some of those, uh, for example, the weights, and the fourth one is, um, is why in those 26 different criteria that you had, um, why didn't you include cost? Okay, so, so this question is about, first of all, the cost of the exercise, are the, different, are the alternatives independent, where were it's anchored, and where does cost of the whole exercise come into play? That's okay, great. so... Cost, cost of the exercise. Uh, I didn't bring the data with me. Um, they are very substantial. They're billions of pounds. Um, and if you look it up on the website, you can see what the costs are for each of the options. They're there. Um, that was a criterion. Cost of the exercise. The sorry? Cost, the cost of you to oh, the cost of our bit to it. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I misunderstood you. Well, you asked both questions. Oh, right. Oh, uh, let's see. The cost of our exercise must have been... Something less than 200,000 pounds. But no, no, but the whole quorum, the whole quorum. Oh, yeah, the whole quorum cost. I, I don't know what their cost is. You'll have to ask them. Millions, no question. Millions of pounds. And, but that, but the, sorry, <laughs> the question about the, the cost of the disposal is, why didn't they feature in the Yeah, choice? why did it feature, well. Or did it's a very interesting question that. One of them is an ethical question that says, this stuff exists, we have to deal with it, whatever it costs. That's one of the questions. Now, I had a master's degree student this summer who investigated the effect of costs. And uh, you, can dis you can very easily uh, add that in to a multi-criteria decision analysis, and he did. And what he found was if you add in the costs, it hardly changes those bar graphs at all. He also considered discounted costs because there's an argument that says you should discount things. Obviously, if you discount costs, then the difference in costs between the least and the most expensive option becomes much, much smaller. The range of difference is very big when you don't discount, and it's very small when you discount. And by the way, the discounting that he adopted was... Uh, depends on the, how many years ahead it is. It's not just a single discount factor. Um, and what he found was that no matter whether he uses the base case, whether he uses discounted costs, uh, and he tried different relative weights, on, you, you have to put an enormous amount of weight on costs before this picture changes. So the basic conclusion that he has come to is it won't if the Treasury includes costs, discounted or undiscounted, unless they put an amount of weight on cost that would certainly create a public outcry, uh, you, you don't change the recommendations. But there were 
without wishing to monopolise the questions from the floor, there were these two other technical points about were the alternatives truly independent and the anchoring of weights? No, the alternatives are not independent. And in fact, if you look at Coram's recommendations, you'll see that they put them together in different ways for different waste streams. So they're not independent. But we decided to evaluate them first on high-level waste, and then we did it separately for the other ones, as if they were independent. But we also recognize that many wastes will go into the same store, and that was recognized at the time when we did the evaluations. And finally, as to the, uh, the possibility of anchoring on weights, I used the nominal group technique with the quorum. Uh, in fact, I, I, I exaggerated it. I had people sitting at two different tables, so the quorum groups were separated. And when we came to judging weights, I said, I want you to go through the nominal group technique independently for each of these two groups, come up with a consensus in each of your two groups, then reveal finally the consensus. So I gave them about 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes to do that. And sometimes they came absolutely to the same conclusion. And sometimes there was a big difference in the weights, which meant that the two groups then had to talk to each other and try to come up with a final quorum consensus. So I worked pretty hard to make sure that we didn't get uh, biases in the weights as well. There's a question over here. Then. It's a long walk, I know, but you're very good at doing this. Just, again, could you say who you are and where you're from? Thank you. John, John Adams from UCL. Uh, while you were talking, I was, I was trying to imagine how this methodology would map on to the GM problem and how it would cope with what I call the Peter Melchett problem. He famously told the House of Lords committee when he was asked at one point whether his objection to GM was fundamental and for all time or whether he imagined he could be persuaded by future science that to, to uh, withdraw his objections. And he said, no, it was for all time because you could never prove it was 100% safe. Now, uh, how, does, how does the methodology cope with fundamentalists, especially if they have lots of allies? Um, and, and putting it in the context, uh, you, one of your uh, lines in the table said you recommended community involvement in citing. And often you can get agreement in principle about some sort of abstract idea, but then when you uh, say it's going to go here, the whole thing blows up again. Yeah, well, it does. Sorry, it's, it's, can I just repeat the questions? So the two questions. One is, as in the genetically modified food debate, if, how do you deal with extremists who regard whatever evidence you have, how it would never be safe? And uh, the second one, the second one was, what was the second one? Well, the second one is the citing. The citing. The citing. So, the, if you ask the community, you'd be not in my backyard. Yeah. Taking the latter one first, the, the whole point of Coram's uh, openness was to get around the earlier approach that has, and that has been used here and in other countries, which they nicknamed Decide, Announce, Defend. That doesn't work. You've got to get people involved right from the start to see whether or not there's a case can be made. If there's huge public resistance locally, you aren't going to succeed. But there must be places in the country where it would be acceptable. Now, maybe we'll find out there aren't. That's a possibility. Then we have to decide what to do about that because the EU directive says it's got to be done here. You can't shuffle it off to somebody else. 
Well, you're more likely to get community involvement. You, you get a good answer with community involvement, in my view. Okay. And the second one was... So how do you handle with extremists? So someone who's adamant... Yeah, all the, oh, the extreme. You know, Damon Runyon once said, uh, you know, when betting on something that's 100% sure, be sure you say cab fare home. There are these people who can't think um, probabilistically. They say, no, it's either black or white. They are very difficult to deal with in these situations. Um, I've had them sometimes in groups who are adamant. But I can work a bit with them to try to loosen up that rigidity. But you know, there are limitations to, to what can be done with people who believe that that's true. I believe that in BSE, the case for BSE, and um, certainly for, for GM, both of those would have been much better approached with a, an open consultative deliberation. It, it was sad. What has happened is probably not scientifically the most satisfactory solution, but it may be the right solution socially. These are political issues. You need to have a political process that engages the people who will be affected. I suppose there's a question, Larry. There were two people who left Corum before you got there. If they'd have been part of the process, would they? It would have been unanswerable questions. We might not have come up with the same result. Hmm. It does depend on who you've got there. It was very wise of Deffert to have selected a group of people who represented a great diversity of opinion. I like diversity. I enjoy doing decision conferences with very different points of view because these people are so stuck in that when they get to know these other people who are thinking very, very differently, over time they come to respect these people very often and think, my God, this person is not just loopy and an SOB. They actually have a point. I, hmm, maybe I should listen. I have actually done research in which probability distributions were assessed by people. And they're very, very narrow probability distributions initially. And as they, dis these are experts about a particular topic. As they discuss these things, by the end of the process, their probability distributions, the means have shifted toward each other, but the variances have increased. In other words, they are less sure of themselves in one sense than when they started because they do give credence to these alternative points of view. We are anchored on our own experience. To get alternative experience within the group is very important to collective decision making. Actually, this is not collective decision making. This is collective recommendation making. I think we've got time for one final question. Has anyone got a final yeah. Could you again say who you are and where you're from, please? Uh, Greg Davis, UCL. It seems to me there's an implicit assumption here that all of the sub-criteria are at the same level of detail or the same level in a hierarchy. And if that assumption is incorrect and some subset of them are much more detailed relative to the others, surely this process overweights those criteria relative sure. to the others. No, that's right. Sorry, I have to repeat it. So the question is, in terms of the criteria, depending on how many multiple sub-criteria are, you're going to end up with different weights for the criteria. Yeah. The way we handle that is to check, and we did, because we, we, we weight first at the lowest level, and then you see what the implications are at the headline criteria level. And when the group saw them, they said, whoops, the ones that had more sub-criteria got too much weight. So they adjusted them downward. And those weights that you saw on that graph on the left are the adjusted weights. So I know that this problem exists. 
This is, by the way, this is one of the reasons why in our master's degree for decision sciences we have a, a good behavioral chunk in it. You, you need to know if you're going to be a practicing decision analyst, what are the errors of, that people make when they're using these models or even when they're not using the models, when they're just making, you know, gut feeling decisions or very quick decisions. So we need to know those things and that's, this is how knowing a behavioral quirk you can accommodate in uh, better elicitation techniques. Okay. Well, again, I'd just like to thank Larry again very much for answering the questions and a great lecture.